Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, friends. Hey, it's so good to be here with you. Uh, my kids just left. Uh, that should give you a warning of how boring the next 45 minutes could be. Uh, if they don't want to stay, maybe nobody does. Uh, we are so excited to be, with, uh, be here with you. This has been the culmination of a journey for us that's, that's been you know, almost a year long now. So I just thought I'd update some of you guys that maybe haven't seen on just you know, what, what the last few weeks have looked like for us. Uh, so we arrived, and I have to control this now. They're trusting me to control this. So there we go. Uh, we arrived uh, to what we expected to look like this. This is the Colorado that we had been sold. Um, and then we landed, not this Tuesday, but the Tuesday before. Anyone remember what last Tuesday looked like? 35 degrees, three inches of snow on the ground. And, and then we were told this. Uh, don't worry. If you don't like the weather in Colorado, uh, it will change in 15 minutes. Well, it did change. I wouldn't have said it improved, but it did change because uh, this beautiful mountain view that we were sold on became this. If you are one of those people that struggles with perception, if you can't see what is missing, I drew it in for you. Um, Somewhere there was supposed to be mountains, that was part of the deal, and then suddenly they were gone. Uh, But we uh, we just have been so welcomed by you guys here, Uh, just the number of ways in which people have just jumped in and just, there were people there to unload for us. Uh, And then when people turned up, when everything was already unloaded, then the people that turned up late then helped us unpack everything into our kitchen. People have invited us over for dinner, have dropped us meals. And there are too many of you uh, for us to be able to drop every one of you a card, although maybe we'll try. Uh, My wife will drop every one of you a card at some point, I promise. Um, But um, it just has just been this joy to be welcomed into this community. So thank you uh, for everything that you have done. Uh, We realize as well that this for you, while it's been a journey for us, it's been a journey for you too, right? What a community of faith South is to travel a year without a lead pastor. What does that say about the elders that have led you, about the staff that have led you, about people like Larry that have led you during that time, through a pandemic, through everything else that has been going on? What a community of faith you are. And we are so excited to join with you. And yet, here's the thing. Joining a community as a lead pastor is this weird experience. Because you suddenly are sort of like, you have this maybe sense of like, remember those old Western movies? There was the hired gun that came in that was supposed to clean everything up. There was a problem and you were supposed to come and you were supposed to shoot all the bad guys and and everything was fine. And, and, And coming in and being told that you're doing all the teaching, you're like, well, I'm an outsider. What about the people in the community? Isn't there a voice there? And so you you feel called in from the outside, and yet as a pastor and a pastor with a family, at the same time, your hope and dream is to find a community. Because that's what this is. It's a community. And so I learned really early on, never try and pastor a church that you don't want to go to. Try and pastor a church that you want to go to, because that you can lead intuitively. And yet, this community has been around for so long. Even if we, my family and I, stayed for 20 years, we could never be here as long as some of the people that have already got in 50, 40 years. Some of you have been here since some of the early times of South. 
And so we realize we're joining this whole bunch of history. And so there's all those dynamics going on. You're looking for a community to join. You're excited to be involved. You're looking for family and friendship. And then you also looked to to do some leading. And then you have this moment where you're like, wow, it's the first Sunday. And now what do I say? I've got to talk to people for a while. And I don't know you. Now, fortunately, I've been a lead pastor before, so I'm used to talking a lot in front of people. And I remember these times back when I was first invited to teach people, when I wasn't a lead pastor. I remember the first time the the lead pastor of a church back in Michigan said to me, I'd like you to preach on Sunday morning. And I said, well, am I teaching as part of a series? What do you want me to say? And he said these really dangerous words. He said, just be yourself. (laughs) And I looked at him and said this. Are you sure? And he said, no. (laughs) But you should definitely just do it anyway. Uh, Just go up and be yourself. And then you get to be a lead pastor and you get to be yourself all the time. But still, there's this hope that when you teach, you teach into what the church is going through. And the truth is, I don't know South. I'm getting to know it. I'm getting to love it. I've been wandering up and down this building. I've got to see the coffee shop as it is right now. I've got to drop in on these other things. I've got to meet Rebecca at the ELC. I've got to meet people running ministries, Sharon with the food pantry, all these different things. I'm getting to know it. I've got to spend time with staff and all these different things. But I still don't really know it. And so as I started to go through this process of, well, what, what do I say? The thing I landed on was, I want to say something that that is always true. That is always true. I want you guys to have a chance to know me. I want to drop in some stories about me and my family. I want it to be something where we get to know each other. But at the same time, I was like, well, what is always true? And Larry, our outgoing executive pastor, touched on it. It's who Jesus is. It's the centrality of this Jesus figure that has drawn us all here. And, and maybe you're listening and you're somewhat, you maybe describe yourself as unchurched or dechurched, and you're not even sure you're committed to this story yet, but there's something about this Jesus story that is compelling. There's something that pulls people in. There's so many people all over the world that might say, I'm not sure about church, but there's something about Jesus. And so we're going to begin to wander through this series for a few weeks Something that I think is always true. This idea of, did you see that? Blink and you missed it. Jesus moments. We're going to look through this book, John. If you're unfamiliar with church and familiar with the New Testament, John is one of the, you might call them biographies of Jesus. Four people chose to write about Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're named for the people that we think may have written them. And they all have these different perspectives. Matthew writes a lot to to people with a Jewish background. And he's very keen that we know that Jesus is king and he's Messiah. And and then Mark writes this this book that's very much directed to people that are maybe in more of the Roman world of the time. And and it's very sort of very direct. And he uses this word immediately over and over again. And it feels like you're on a runaway roller coaster. Jesus is always doing something. And then Luke writes in this sophisticated prose. He's like an English major. Jesus is always doing something, and he's always doing it in a very well-spoken way. Jesus went out one day, and whilst he was stood there, a crowd of children approached him, and it goes on and on and on. And then John comes last, and John is this rich, rich narrative about Jesus' life. He draws on these sources and these stories that everybody else seems to have forgotten, and he captivates us with this Jesus who does different, slightly 
different things. The main premises of the story are the same, but yet there's these things that appear, these things that Jesus does that are magical. And yet they're subtle at the same time. And so as we're going to explore these first four chapters of John, we're going to look at this idea that this Jesus does things that we might just miss if we're not watching closely. Have you ever had that experience? I have a friend who was a youth pastor out in Bel Air, more of a friend of a friend, out in Bel Air in California. And as you can imagine, when you're putting on events out in California, they have to be good. There's a lot of richer families there, a lot of people in Hollywood and things. So he has this moment where he calls in a magician and says, I want you to do the show that will blow these kids' minds. And so he does all these tricks and these illusions, and then there's this final moment where he levitates this glass orb off the stage, and he waves his hand, and this thing disappears in front of you. And as my friend or friend of a friend tells this story, in that moment, everybody claps, and then there's a pause And then from the back of the room, there's this slow clap. And he turns around, and Mel Gibson, the actor, is stood at the back of the church clapping for this illusionist. And then he says, that was amazing. You should do that again. Except it seems like he may have been a little drunk, and he threw in some words that are not appropriate for church that I did not include in my story. But there's this moment. Have you ever felt like Mel Gibson where something happened? You're like, I I don't know exactly what happened. I had this experience when I started coaching people. I started coaching soccer, and suddenly I went from watching it on TV all the time and having the joy of instant replay, and then suddenly I was coaching and there was no live TV, and something would happen. And I'd say, oh, I'm not sure I saw what I think I saw. And we approach these Jesus stories, these Jesus moments, years after the fact, and we can read them over and over again, and in some ways they become overly familiar. But what I'd love us to do over these next few weeks is to put ourselves in these Jesus moments. Imagine what it was like for his earliest followers to see him do things that seemed impossible, to do things that sort of took old Jewish stories and said, no, uh, I'm going to make these about me. Because what I think you're going to see through these first four chapters of John is Jesus takes everything and says it's about me. We're going to watch as he looks at really basic things like wine and bricks and water and says, these things teach about me. We're going to look as he takes supernatural big stories like the beginning of time, like the temple, like spirit, these big words that we maybe don't fully understand. And he'll start to say, no, these are about me. Jesus takes everything and says, no, this is about me. I am central to everything. So we're going to start in John chapter 1. So if you have a Bible in front of you, mine's upside down. I will smoothly turn it the right way around, uh, as is appropriate for reading. And I'm just going to read it to start with, and we'll look at the text together in a second. It begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we'll pause there and skip down to verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world 
did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not recognize him. Now, I had this grand hope that we could get all the way down to verse 16 today, but I'm suspicious that we might only get down to about verse 4 or 5. But let's pray as we get into this text. God, we, in this group who follow you, and that may not be all of us right now, and that's fine. We who call you Savior, Lord, who chase after you, we believe that you breathed on this book and it came alive. And we're asking you now, God, breathe into us. As we look to you, breathe new life into us, new possibilities into us, new hopes and dreams into us. May this thing captivate us. May these stories about you change us. God, I pray for us as a community that this teaching would do what it's supposed to do, that it would comfort the afflicted and it would afflict the comfortable. Thank you, Jesus, for change. Amen. John begins with these words, in the beginning. You may have heard that phrase before somebody somewhere else. In the beginning, to a Jewish person, this certainly would be a very, very familiar phrase. In the beginning, and it got me thinking about this idea of how you start a book. It can be quite important. Like, I know usually instantly whether I'm in on a book or out straight away. So I had some examples for you. Here we go. When Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 111st birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. Anyone know the source? It's pretty easy. Lord of the Rings. It has this, con this way of grabbing me. Instantly, I want to know everything about Mr. Bilbo Baggins and his party. I want to know what's going on in this world. How about another one for you? It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. A statement that's as true today as it was when Jane Austen wrote it many years ago, I'm sure. And, and there's just, I impressed my wife delightfully when we first met by being able to quote the first page of Pride and Prejudice. It's just this captivating thing, like what, what an interesting statement. And then how about this one? Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were happy to say they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much the beginning of Harry Potter. And there's something about it, isn't there? Some way that she creates this statement that says, do you know what? I'm a little suspicious about Mr. and Mrs. Dursley. I'm not quite sure they're as perfectly normal as they may want me to believe. And I want to get into this story. And, and I did accidentally choose all British authors. So if you weren't sure, you are getting a dig, like a lesson on British, made, British literature or something like that. Um, but there's these ways these stories have of captivating you. And then at the same time, you can start a story in ways that are truly horrific. So one of the things you'll learn about me as we progress on this delightful journey together is I am unconfessedly a nerd. Uh, I have so many little nerd things that I'm interested in and I can't resist sharing with the, them with you in, in person. Uh, so you're just gonna have to get used to it. Um, and, and so one of my favorite times of year is this. Um, it is the release of the Beulah Lighton Fiction Writing Contest Award. So Beulah Lighton, if you're not sure who that is, is the guy that crafted the original line, it was a dark and stormy night. It was a dark and stormy night, all the possibilities. And this becomes one of these lines that's completely overused. And, and this award now is designed, it, it's this award that celebrates the person that can write the worst opening line possible. 
So people from all over the world, they get together and they write these lines and they send them in and every year there's a big winner announced and it's been going on for 35 years now and I genuinely get excited to see who has won this year, who has crafted a piece of literature that is truly, truly awful. And this was a winner that I thought I would share with you. Cassie smiled as she clenched John's hand on the edge of an abandoned pier, while the sun set gracefully over the water as the final rays of light disappeared into the star-filled sky. She knew there was one thing left to do to finish off this wonderful evening, which was to throw his severed appendage into the ocean's depths so it could never be found again, and maybe get some custard afterwards. It's this ridiculous turn of phrase, right? It sounds like a romance novel, everything's fine, and then you're like, what? Where did we get severed appendage from? It's just bizarre, and so people have, have crafted these lines for us, and it's just a joy. You get great opening lines and terrible opening lines, and on the surface, I would say John, in the beginning, seems like a fantastic opening line. It's captivating. And yet, from a Jewish perspective, putting ourselves back in that first century Jewish position, I wonder if it's not a horrific opening line. It might just be the worst opening line you could dream up. Because think about it, Matthew starts with the idea that Jew, Jesus is a king. And we can live with that. Mark will talk about the idea that he is the son of man, he is God's representative on earth. Luke, this other writer, will talk about how Jesus is the friend of sinners, and all of them will share this idea that Jesus is the son of God on earth. And that, while it might be a stretch we can get on board with, maybe, but for a Jewish person to put this Jesus person in the beginning, to throw this allusion all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, there's this moment of like, what are you saying? How far do you want to stretch this Jesus story? In the beginning was the word. On the surface, it's preposterous. What has John heard and seen about this Jesus person that makes him think he can stretch his story to Genesis chapter 1? Jesus suddenly isn't someone that appeared in Bethlehem, maybe under miraculous circumstances. He's suddenly not a miracle worker or a great teacher. Suddenly, he's connected to the beginning. The beginning of Genesis chapter 1 starts in the beginning God. In Hebrew, it is Barashit bara Elohim. In Greek, when they translated it, it's this idea of enarche. It's the beginning. The first chapter of Genesis is the first moment in Jewish literature that God is pulled out of time. They begin to say something like, God is over everything. God is bigger than time, bigger than this fundamental thing. And, and now John is saying that about this rabbi that he's followed for a few years. Because when we think about Jesus' story with John, it actually doesn't start off that crazy. It's very normal. Jesus is a local rabbi. He begins doing what local rabbis have done for many, many years, which is to call for followers and say, I'm going to take you and I'm going to train you and I'm going to produce you and I'm going to send you out into the world. And sometimes we forget just how everyday that was. Now, Jesus does something slightly different. Jesus takes the outcasts the misfits. Generally, Jewish education would work like this. Uh, you would go through education, especially as a male child, you'd go through education until 11. And then, and then they would do this kind of like the cut system, you know, like high school sports. They would say, no, you're not going to make it. And so go and learn a trade, go back to your father's house and, and do whatever he does. 
And so the, the worst of the students would go, and then you'd keep some others who would get to go through education longer, and then there's another cut, and finally the best students would get to go through this education process till 30, and then they might take on rabbis of their own. But sometimes we have these pictures of Jesus and his disciples that in reality just make them look old. To illustrate this, uh, what I'd love is, is there a couple of uh, guys here, maybe sort of around the age of 15, 16, 17, 18? Anyone there that is brave enough to come up on stage? Someone, anyone, anyone, just to go, come on, come up here, come, 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 come. Just come up on stage, very good, very good. Clap him as he comes, well done. Anyone else, have we got a couple more, or is that, are we limited to that? We'll even take someone like 19, 20, if that works, and stuff like that. But we'll do with just one. Maybe we'll have more in the second service, who knows? But here, here you can take your mask off for this, it's approved. I'm gonna stand over here. So, think about this for a second. Jesus, and sorry, what was your name? Christian. Christian, and we met, right, Christian? Yeah, we met outside, we, you were throwing a football. You're a Jets fan? Jets fan. Love it. In Broncos territory, I was told don't say anything bad about the Broncos on Sunday morning. I'm a Lions fan, so I've suffered. I can say what I want about anyone. Um, So Jesus and his followers looked like this. Jesus was younger than me when he died and rose again. Jesus' earliest followers were 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds. The oldest of them may have been Peter. There's this moment where Jesus uh, has to go and pay temple tax for him and for Peter. And it seems like Peter might have been over the age where he had to do that. But for the most part, Christian is what we're talking about when we talk about the earliest followers of Jesus. These were young men. We see pictures of them with beards down to here, and they've definitely got some white in them, and we think of them as old men, yet Jesus goes around and he calls these young men that have been sent back to learn a trade, to fish, to do tax collecting, whatever they are doing, and he takes them and he says, you guys, you 12 will change the world. I'm going to do something. I'm going to set the ball rolling, and then you're going to take it, and you're going to run with it, and that will be life changing or world changing. Christian, you can grab a seat. Thank you very much. It wasn't very hard. I just needed you to stand there and look. Look disciple-like. Now you realize for this group of people, for the rest of their lives, when they picture a disciple, they're going to picture you. Um, so you got a lot to live up to, my friend. Uh, but this is, this is how it starts. And then the ball starts rolling with all these different things, all these different things that John will begin to see Jesus do. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look as Jesus turns water into wine. As he talks about this temple, this holy place, and says, actually, it could fall down, and it wouldn't matter too much because everything that was important there is now centered on me. He's going to talk about mysterious spirit, about this thing that cannot be seen, and say, no, that's connected to me too. He's going to talk about giving water to someone and say, well, well, water's fine, and we're in Colorado, so we appreciate lack of water. There's not as much water here as I'm used to, but, but water's fine. But no, there's, a, there's another kind of water that I'm going to give. Jesus will begin to do these things, and every single one of them is mysterious. It speaks back into something that is old. John is amazed that Jesus will take things that are old and talk about them in new ways. So amazed is he that he will take the oldest thing and say, I've decided that is about Jesus too. Jesus is John's lead story. Maybe you're uh, familiar with that term in journalism, don't bury the lead. 
It's this idea that you can have a story that's so amazing, and you can take the main fact, and you can leave it out altogether. John is convinced that Jesus is his lead story. And he won't bury it. He'll make that the thing all the time. And what he's doing is this wonderful thing. Again, nerd culture is about to come out for you. He's doing this thing that I would call retroactive continuity. So if you're familiar with comic book movies, all those kind of things, and hopefully you are, and if you're not, you're going to be at some point soon. Um, Jesus is the lead story. So let's get to here. So this is Spider-Man, of course. Retroactive continuity is something that happens in comic books all the time. So think about if you remember the early Spider-Man stories. Why does Spider-Man become Spider-Man? He's bitten by a spider. But what kind of spider is he bitten by? Well, in the earliest stories, he's been bitten by a spider that has been affected by radiation, by nuclear power. Because when Spider-Man came out, everything, everybody was terrified about nuclear power. And then we skip forward to the Spider-Man movies that come later, and suddenly no one's worried about nuclear power anymore, so they need something else. So they go back and they change the story, and suddenly the spider that bites him is one that has been through a process of genetic modification. That on the surface is what retroactive continuity means. It means you go back and you change the story. And this is happening delightfully right now for those of you that have seen it in this TV series called Cobra Kai. So I am a child of the 80s, unashamedly. So I grew up going through the Karate Kid movies. Now, unfortunately, my wife hates them, so I never get to watch them anymore. But I've started to watch them with my kids just so they can see just how wonderful the 80s were. And, and the, you guys remember the, the moment, the, the key moment of Karate Kid is this, this moment where in the final scene, Daniel LaRusso pulls out this kick that nobody has ever achieved in like a competition before. He's learned it from his incredible master, Mr. Miyagi. He's seen him performing it, and then suddenly, in this moment that looks like defeat, there's this celebration as Daniel LaRusso pulls off this kick and wins the competition with the crane kick. And we all celebrated, we all cheered, the inspirational music kicked, kicked in, and, and everything was good. So Cobra Kai is this series set 35 years later. As we get to catch up with the characters, it's anyone's, any movie lover's dream because you always have those moments in movies where you're like, oh, I wonder what happened to them or where did they go next? And so Cobra Kai is interested in this whole concept of retroactive continuity that I'm talking about because Johnny Lawrence, the bad guy in Karate Kid, spends most of the series complaining about how, no, no, it didn't really happen like this. Or at least it shouldn't have, because he used an illegal kick. It shouldn't have been a victory. It should have been a defeat. And he watches scenes play, and Johnny Lawrence re-narrates re them for you and starts to try and convince the people that are listening to him that, no, 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 I was the good guy all along. Daniel LaRusso pushed me to it. He tormented me, and I just lashed out as any person might do when pushed to the absolute limits. It goes back, and it changes the story. Those are just a couple of examples of what John is doing here. On the surface, it seems to a Jewish person, you're going back and you're changing the story. Because in the beginning, God was not about Jesus on the surface. And John is so convinced it is, he's willing to take that huge risk in the opening of his book. To him, in the beginning, doesn't just point to God behind the scenes invisible. It points to this rabbi that he spent three years chasing around the Galilean wilderness. 
Think about how incredible that is. Jesus never did some of the things that might point to fame. Never traveled more than a couple of hundred miles from his hometown. Never wrote a book. Never wrote a song. Never did any of the things we might think of as significant achievements. Never painted a work of art. Never constructed a building. He didn't do any of those things. On the surface, his ministry was this. It was abject failure. It was death on a Roman cross. We tend to think about that as a pinnacle of achievement now, and that's us looking at it with our 21st century eyes, because here's the truth about the Roman cross. They did that repeatedly to thousands of people, and none of them are remembered. They're forgotten. They're done. And yet this Jesus figure sticks out amongst all of them. And John will take this figure that on the surface died on a cross, and then he'll take this, this story of resurrection that is birthed from it and say, all of this has convinced me that Jesus' story doesn't start in Bethlehem, doesn't start in Nazareth or any of those places. It starts way beyond time and space. He was there in the beginning. Now I wonder, when we look at it deeper, Is that such a push or stretch as we might imagine? When you read the Old Testament, the the Jewish Bible, there's all these stories lurking under the surface that actually they hidden at this kind of thing. Maybe they're not explicit, but they definitely have hints. We can move beyond that. If we believe this idea that Theonutis, that this this Bible is God-breathed, this thing that we read is God-breathed, we'd expect to find this sort of story that, that... covers all the different books, the 66 of them, if you're unfamiliar, and, and we'd expect to find these common themes in amongst them. We'd expect to find that there's the authors of the books, but then there's what you might call the author, there's, there's God who's writing the story behind the scenes. This God is breathing into it, and then incredibly becoming a character in his own story, according to John. And so you'd expect to find these hints in place. And this is a chapter uh, from Genesis chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre. While he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Now what's going on here? This is this famous character, Abraham, sitting in a tree. And it says, it seems on the surface, two different things. The Lord appeared to Abraham And then he saw three men. People reading Genesis have wrestled with this for years. What does it mean? But it seems so comfortable going from this idea that this is the Lord, this is God who is not seen and suddenly now is seen in three. Now, if you're familiar with the fact that we have a whole host of brothers and sisters following Jesus all over the world that at times will see things slightly different to us, you may have come across something like this. This is called an icon. It comes from the Orthodox Church. This is Rublev's Rublev's Trinity. And he drew this to picture this scene of the trees of Mamre. There's three that come and visit Abraham. And he pictured these three as the Trinity. There's Father on the left. There's Jesus sitting in the center. And the Spirit to the right. And you can tell by the way he draws them that there's the specific, you can tell who is who. Uh, The father is all in gold and he doesn't touch the table at all. And Jesus has two fingers on the table and he has a brown robe because he's deeply connected with earth. And then the spirit has a hand on the table because he is the one that is still 
present. And all of those things suggest that, that, that each character has a specific, you know, we know who each one of them is. But Rublev drew this to picture the idea that, that God was there as Trinity, three in one, way back in the Old Testament. When John says that Jesus was there in the beginning, maybe he's not making as much of a stretch as we think he is. Maybe he's tapping into this story that's always been lurking under the surface. It's just taken all the things that Jesus has done to convince him that Jesus is a part of this thing. The great thing about this scene, as we'll see, is we are invited into this scene. This story of Jesus, when you think about it, is about beginnings. But because it's a new story, it's also interested in new beginnings as well. If Genesis is beginnings, and the name Genesis just comes simply from this word beginning, John is new beginnings. And isn't that an encouraging thought? Because haven't each of us walked that journey where we're like, ah, oh, I could use a new beginning. What is it in your story at the moment that you say, oh, God, if only you would breathe on that part of my life and create it anew? Perhaps it's the same struggle that you faced over and over again. Perhaps it's a struggle of everything that this pandemic has done, the wearing of it, the, the weight of it. Perhaps it's a marriage that at one point felt like it was thriving and now begins to struggle. Perhaps it's parenting in the sense that like, ah, oh, I just don't know if I can do this day after day anymore. Perhaps it's loss and mourning and loneliness. What is it that needs to be spoken new over you? I would suggest that if Genesis is beginning, then John is this idea of new beginning. And that is a wonderful thing. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Genesis 1 talks about this idea of light, and then John in his writing talks about how Jesus comes and he brings light, and that life, light is life to all men. What is it that you need light shined upon in your life? Think about that experience of someone turning on the light and going from darkness to light. And that's what John says this Jesus story brings. It's this moment of captivating light, of captivating newness. John sees something unique in Jesus in his ability to do this. Jesus' centrality is this idea that there is a stage and it's dark and there's this spotlight and the spotlight rests on Jesus. He is this lead story and John will not bury his lead story. All things to John center on this Jesus. He brings light, life, and that life was light to all men. The interesting thing about, we'll skip that because I'm running out of time. Um, the interesting thing about this idea that Rublev brings is this. When they looked at this picture years later, they found, they took it down for cleaning and they found there was this gap in it. It looked like something had been removed from this picture. 
There was like this weird sort of sense where there was, there'd, there'd been glue, and, and that glue was like still there, but there was something that was taken off. What they discovered after a while of investigating was that the probability was that somewhere there, there was this mirror that sat at the bottom of the picture. The idea was that you would come and you would gaze at it, and you would see yourself reflected. There's this beautiful idea that God as Trinity is this important concept because it means that God is in constant relationship with himself. He is in relationship as Father, Son, and Spirit. But the incredible joy of Rublev's Trinity is this. You and I were invited in to that relationship. John starts his story with who Jesus is. Jesus is part of everything, bigger than everything. And as we get to look over the next few weeks, we'll look at him turn water into wine. We'll look at him take a building and say, no, this building speaks about me. We'll look at him as we, he takes the idea of spirit, this thing that we can't see, and says, no, this is me too. And we'll look as he talks about water and says, no, all of these things speak to me. But John is so convinced, he says, in the beginning, it wasn't just this God distant and separate. It was this God now walking and the earth amongst us. You are invited in to that story. When you think about what it is that you need to be made new, that becomes possible when you step into that story for yourself. Without him, we can do nothing. Years later, after Jesus' time, Paul, the writer, will say this, in all things that he might have the preeminence. Jesus is central to everything. I'm going to invite Aaron and the team to come up and lead us in worship again. But that is my dream for us as a community, to begin at that point. Jesus is central. There are other things to say, other things to celebrate, but Jesus is central. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for this community of faith that we get to jump in and join. It's so exciting to get to learn it, to know it to live in amongst it, to be part of it. Thank you, Jesus, for the way that you breathed into this book. Thank you for the life that comes from it. And in amongst, each, in amongst our community now, there are perhaps people that need a new story spoken over them, a new thing breathed into them, new strength, new energy. God, you breathed on this book. Would you breathe on us now? As we worship together. May we experience your goodness. Will you stand with me, friends? Maybe in this moment, as Aaron begins to pray, there's, there's something that you need. You come in weighed down by this unspoken thing. Perhaps there's a dream or a hope of something new. For a moment, would you lift your hands in front of you? God, we who follow you, we your people, the sheep of your pasture, we now look to you. Spirit, come and walk amongst the aisles. Come and lift heads that hang down low. Take out old and begin to create new things. We're asking you now for our brothers, our sisters, 
for those that feel outside, for those that feel that they're not a part of this thing. We're asking for your presence. If this community is defined by one thing, may it be defined by your presence. Because we didn't come just to do a church thing, to tick a box. We came to experience you. For my friends weighed down by sickness, may you bring healing. For those who feel caught in the waves of an ocean, feel lost, uncertain of the journey ahead, may you bring peace. For those who feel lonely, may you bring joy. God, we wait for you. Thank you for the joy of gathering together. That we are a gathering people. And for those that this is their first time back gathering, may they take away a real sense of you and your presence. God is working in your life through this ministry. Join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org/give or on the South Fellowship app. Thanks for listening today, South family, and have a great rest of your day.